Well, as we start out in our new building together, it's not exactly our first Sunday, but we're still setting the tone for what kind of a church are we going to be as we transition from uh, many parking lots into a new building? Um, what kind of a life are we going to have together as we, um, as we begin? And I feel like a huge need for our congregation and for the whole world and our community included within that is we need rest. Uh, we need stability. And the world is longing and calling out for these things. And the reality is we need rest and we need stability. We do need it from our circumstances. Our circumstances are really challenging. Uh, they've been challenging for us as a church. They've been challenging for our world, and they're, they're still challenging today. But the fact of the matter is our circumstances could change, and I'm sure they will change probably for the better um, and yet, we know from our own lives, looking back to, if you can even remember before 2020 in March, what life was like, we know that we have times in our lives, seasons in our lives, when our circumstances are quite good, where everything's going pretty well, and yet we're still not finding rest or stability. And so there's this illusion that if our circumstances would just change, because they are challenging right now to be sure, then we'll be okay. Then, then we will find the rest and stability that we're longing for, when in reality, we know, looking into the future, that everything could change circumstantially, and we still, like the children of Israel who I spoke about last week in my sermon, we still would complain. We still would grumble. I mean, it must have been really exhausting for the people of God to have Mount Sinai on their left, for 40 years as they circled around it. And they're wondering, what is the cloud doing? What is the fire doing? This does not seem like good directional management, but God had a plan in the midst of that. And his plan was that they would learn in the wilderness period to put their hope in him, to find rest and to find stability in the Lord. They would one day go into the promised land and their circumstances would be better, but they still would need to fundamentally learn to put their trust and their hope in the Lord. Here in our passage, you have God talking about the nation of Israel and how they spend their Sabbath days. It's actually not just about just the Sabbath day, which for them was a Saturday, for us is a Sunday. It's actually even more poignant than that. It's how the people of God spend their Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was the highest religious day of the people of God in the Old Testament. And the Day of Atonement was a precursor to the celebration that we have on Good Friday or the cross of Jesus Christ. And so you have, you have Isaiah speaking to the people of God about how they spend not just their Sabbaths, but about their highest religious day. And as these people would go through the motions, their external lives... Their, their, um, their external rituals and, and how they kind of put themselves together looked really good. The external report card was pretty decent. They might have even gotten an A. But God isn't going to give them a grade externally. He's going to give them a grade internally. And, and what God says here about his people in Isaiah 58 is quite scathing, actually. He gives them some really negative feedback, really negative. And it's, that's what, in our, in our lives, when we receive that negative feedback, not just from other people, which can be hard, but when we receive that negative feedback from the Lord, when the Lord points out to us areas of our lives that need to change, 
this is really, uh, this is a really important moment. This is an important moment for us, whether or not we're going to align ourselves with God and his grace, or are we going to align ourselves with what we've been doing before that, whatever God is pointing out. And God points out to them, the people of God, some gross attitudes, sins, and practices that they were hoping that he wouldn't notice. Because on the outside, they had learned to be quite religious, but on the inside, they were missing the mark. I was having a conversation with one of my kids a few years back when they were little, and they had just learned about the Pharisees in children's church. And they came and they were like, what is, one of those like, what is the deal with these religious guys, these, these guys that would wear these long robes and these tassels on the end of their robes, and they thought that they were better than everyone else. And that's what they were trying to project on the outside. What is the deal? My, my son was really wondering, why are people like that? Especially why are religious leaders like that? I mean, it's a genuine, honest, beautiful question. And so I explained to, to him that, you know, oftentimes people, um, you know, they put themselves together on the outside, but they, they really don't have a heart that is truly following the Lord. But then my child said back to me, well, how can people who say they're Christians think they're better than other people? That doesn't really make sense, does it? And I said, no, it doesn't. But the reality is people in the church live like this all the time. And, you know, as kids do, they kept on asking, well, why? Why do people live like this all the time? And I didn't give him an answer to that question. Because my own child, it says, I was just reading through the Psalms, Psalm 8, through the, the mouths of babes and infants, we learn things from the Lord. Why? You know, why is it our tendency as religious people, as Christians, that we, as we grow in Christ, would actually think we're better than other people? Why is that? Why do we spend so much time on the external appearance without looking at the heart? Because none of us, according to the fundamental symbol of our faith, the cross, are good. At the cross, we are made honest or else we do not understand it at all. At the cross, there are not the good people and the bad people. There are Jesus and everyone else who needs him, who desperately needs his mercy. There is only one who is good at the cross, and that person is Jesus alone. So this morning, we're going to talk about what it's like to be a cross-shaped church. What does it look like for a church to be shaped by the cross of Jesus Christ. We're going to start by talking about what a disoriented church looks like. Then we're going to talk about where reorientation happens at the cross. And then finally, we're going to talk about what it means to be a cross-shaped church, a church that is shaped by the things that God takes seriously at the cross. Okay? So first of all, the disoriented church. The disoriented church. And that's what we find here in verse 1. God says, Declare to my people their transgressions, to the house of Jacob their sins. What he's saying is that there's rebellion in the church. Now, this would have been surprising. Apparently, it was surprising for the people to get this feedback from God because they thought they were doing basically okay. Now, what did they think that they were doing all right? What do we know about these people? They faithfully go to church. And so from an outward perspective, they're exemplary in their religious practices. They even pray, they fast, they go the extra mile in observing all the holidays. I mean, they are rigorous people. On the Day of Atonement, which is the only day that they were required to fast, these people 
they kept God's word. They, they fasted, and they even fasted on other Sabbath days, it seems like. These are people who are successful business people. We know that they are more successful. They're, some of them are, are more empowered because they have workers under them in verse 3. So they've accumulated some kind of wealth from their, uh, their lives. They're comparatively comfortable. They've been given much materially by God. These are upstanding religious people who are empowered in society and who are living comfortable lives. Okay? That sounds a lot like me. It sounds a lot like you. It sounds a lot like a lot of us these days. You know, as I was preparing this message, I was thinking a lot about um, the religious leaders, not just religious leaders, but a lot of Christians in my, that I know of and that you know of that have fallen. In fact, if you read Christianity Today's 2021 most read stories email, where they have the top 20 most clicked on stories and read stories, I didn't exactly count, but something like seven to ten of them are about religious leaders who have fallen and the impact they've had on their communities. I mean, it's just, it's just tragic. It's awful um, what we see happening in the church. And a lot of people have been listening to the rise and fall of Mars Hill as well. And it's easy in those moments to, and it's right to hold our leaders accountable, to hold me accountable, to hold our elders and everyone else accountable but it's also easy when we're listening to these exposés to think that the problems are out there, when the problems are really for all of us. We all need to take account of how our lives measure up to the cross of Jesus Christ. So why does God give this negative assessment to these well-meaning believers? Well, they've become a disoriented church. It says in verse 2, day after day they seek me out, they seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation who does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of God. God says, that at first glance, these people come across as eager. Uh, they are doing all the things that would make it seem like that they really want to hear from me and be blessed by me. But at the same time, there's, there's some things going on in them that are causing everything to go wrong spiritually. Their lives are inconsistent with the very atonement that they are celebrating. The Day of Atonement is the central religious day of the year. The atonement was set apart in this day, this Day of Atonement. Why? It's so that for millennia, the people of God would be having their number one religious day be about atonement, be about the fact that you're a sinner, be about the fact that you need forgiveness, be about the fact that you need a sacrifice, you need a substitution. You cannot, you cannot live on your own. You cannot be good enough on your own for God. You need a redeemer. All of this pointing forward to the cross. So what makes God's people throughout history different from all the other people of the world is that we have had a day of atonement. We've had a day of atonement. What makes us better is not that we get everything right, and it's definitely not that we style ourselves outwardly as having everything together. It's that we know we need a Savior, and we look to Jesus Christ who was sacrificed for us on the cross. The atonement is the vital center of who we are as God's people and should inform who we are and what we do in every way. And we become a disoriented church when the cross isn't shaping our hearts or impacting our ministry. And so God is speaking to them and saying, you're disoriented. You're disoriented. 
and maybe in some ways, I'm sure God's saying that to us as a church as well. You're disoriented. You need to focus again on me. I was preaching last week talking about the rock in the wilderness, and it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, that the rock was Christ. So easy to focus on everything else. Are we focused on Jesus Christ? Are we focused on the cross of Jesus Christ? So where reorientation happens for us as a church, that's the second point this morning. Where reorientation happens is at the cross. If we will consistently look at Jesus' atoning work, it will reshape our lives. The first question after we meet Jesus at his cross should be something like, okay, Lord, now that you've died for me, now that you've died for me on the cross, how do you want me to respond to you? How do you want me to live for you? How do you want me to value the things that you value, Lord? That should be the first question at the cross. And if we take the cross seriously, we have to learn to live for Christ's kingdom instead of our little kingdoms. We can't use Jesus on his cross. You can't look to Christ on the cross and then treat him like a butler or a genie. You can't. If you're taking the cross seriously, you can't then have Jesus be for you someone who just brings you things that you need him to. He, you now serve him. He doesn't serve you. Principally, he is our Lord and we are his servants. And many times in this passage, it says, on your Sabbath day, you pursue your own pleasures, your own pleasures, your own pleasures, your own pleasures. And at the cross, we learn, we can learn increasingly how to be pleased with the things that God is pleased with instead of constantly bringing him requests for our own pleasures. On one hand, they are saying, look at, look at the end of verse 3 and then at verse th 13. They're on one hand saying, we want to do as we please. We want to go our own way. We want to do as we please. In the ESV, at the end of verse 13, it says they talk idly. In the NIV, it actually says they live idle lives. So on one hand, they want to look at the cross. And on the other hand, they want to say, God, give us our pleasures. Give us our pleasures. On the one hand, they want to look at the cross. On the other hand, they want to say, God, we're just going to live idle lives. We're just going to... We're going to actually talk idly. We're going to talk about meaningless things with each other in our lives. In Isaiah 58, we find people who on one hand are saying, they're saying, I need a spotless, innocent lamb to save me. And on the other hand, they're saying, God, give me my pleasures. And those are just inconsistent things that I know that I, I do this all the time with the Lord. And it's incredibly convicting for me as well as I was preparing this message. How can we tell if the cross is the shaping influence of our lives? Now, we have to be very careful here because every Christian has been trained from day one in children's church to know that the Sunday school answer is Jesus. To know that the Sunday school answer is, yes, I know that the cross should be the shaping center of my life. Our hearts are desperately deceptive. So how can we ask a few diagnostic questions to see what is shaping our hearts for real? Well, here's one question. What do you honestly want most from God? What do you honestly want most from God? Do you serve God? Do you do all that you do for him so that God will give you more blessings in your family, at work, or financially? Do you, what is motivating your service to God? Is it so that God, is, it, is what you want the most for God to give you those things? 
what is motivating you at the center of your life? Because these people are saying in verse 3, why have we fasted and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? They are eager for God to come near, it says in verse 2, because they believe when God comes near, he will bless them by easing their circumstances. He will give them more financial blessings. He will give them more peace and prosperity and stuff. And God says, you've got it all wrong. You see, I've given you everything. When I gave you my son, I gave you salvation. I gave you forgiveness. I gave you every possible blessing. When you look to the cross of Jesus Christ, are you thankful for what Christ has given you? Do you principally, when you think about God and what you want from him, do you realize that Psalm 23 is true in verse 1 when it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Do you realize all that Christ has given you? Do you desperately want others in your life and yourself to be oriented around the Lord, to serve him, to want his glory and his renown? God says to these people, you've got it all wrong. I've given you everything. So God says, let's get it straight. I'm not going to let you use my son's cross as a platform for you to pursue your own self-centeredness. I'm not going to let you use my, the cross to kind of make you feel better about yourself so that you, on one hand, kind of get rid of the guilt and the shame, which is nice, but on the other hand, it's really about you. It's about you doing whatever you feel like doing. I'm not going to let you use the cross as a platform for your own self-centeredness. I'm just not going to do that. God's saying that's not the way this works. That's not the way following me works. You have to actually, truly follow me. What God wants for his church is the opposite of self-centeredness. He wants the inversion of the self where we are no longer the shaping influence of our lives, but Jesus' cross is. And so we get into what does it look like? This is the third and final point. It's a little bit longer. What does it look like when the cross shapes the church? What does a cross-shaped church look like according to God in Isaiah 58? What are those things that are so important to the heart of God that God sent his son for us? That he sent his son for us on a mission. As we, we sang this morning, uh, the son of suffering, he walked in the dirt with you and me. He's acquainted with our griefs. He knows what living is. Why did God do that? Why did he go to these links? Why did he go to the cross? Did Jesus go to the cross? Did he die on the cross for you so that you could live for yourself? No, he didn't. He didn't do that. He died on the cross for you so that you could live for him, so that you could bring into the world the things that he cares most about as we live in him as the head of the church. So what are those things we see in Isaiah 58 that matter so much to God, he says, on the day of atonement, so much to him on the cross? Well, first of all, there's two things that we learn here, two big things. The first is the cross means that God takes justice seriously and so should we. God takes justice seriously, and so should we. And we've heard a lot about justice in the last two years, so I, I mentioned this on the 17th of December in my sermon, but as I know, I can barely remember what I preached on last month, so I, I don't expect you to. Um, but what is justice? So justice is rooted in the character of God. Justice is the same, the same Hebrew word is, is the root word of righteousness. It flows from his righteousness. So God has been just for all eternity. 
God has been just from before, long before the fall. But in the fall, when the fall happened, creation that God made fell away from God's righteousness, and people began to treat God and each other unjustly. Rather than treating one another according to his righteousness and his love, they treated each other with selfishness and hatred. And so after the fall, we can call God's justice his restorative justice. God wants to restore the world to be on par with or measured against his righteousness. This is his restorative justice. Now, there's two aspects of his restoring justice which are really important to understand, and we see both in this passage. The first aspect of God's justice is that sinners have to be held accountable for their sin. Sinners have to be accountable for sin. The second aspect of justice, we're going to break these down one at a time, is the most vulnerable in the world, the most physically, emotionally, psychologically, circumstantially affected by the brokenness of the fall must be defended. Okay? We're going to go through these one at a time. Sinners must be held accountable for their sin, first of all. The whole chapter is actually about this. God is holding his church accountable for sin. He's calling them throughout this chapter to repent of specific things. And if we learn anything at the cross, we learn that God takes sin seriously. He does. He takes it extremely seriously. God's justice means that sinners have to be held accountable for their actions. We deserve justice. We deserve justice. If anybody actually wants to stand, particularly if you're in the church, if you actually would want to stand on your own merit, if you actually would want to stand before God and say, yeah, I've basically, I'm basically doing a great job. I've, I've kind of figured this whole thing out. I would like to stand before you, God, on my own merit. Man, I, I just, I just get, I'd be very worried about you if you actually want to do that. If you actually want to stand before God on your own merit. No way. People that actually want to live in a world without justice, when they, when they say, oh, I, you know, I don't, I don't want justice or, or I don't want justice in the way that, that people talk about it. We all listen. We all really do want justice. We want this world to be made right. And we need justice to be true. But we can't stand before God, before a holy God, before a just God, without being consumed. And so that is why God sent his son. That's why he sent Jesus. He sent Jesus to absorb the justice of God. So that Jesus took on all the just displeasure God had, against sin, and so that we wouldn't have to receive it. We need justice to be true, but we can't receive justice from God on our own without a mediator, without someone to atone. And so God sends Jesus to live a perfect life, to receive the justice of God, so that if we trust in him, he'll pay for our sin. So first of all, we need sinners to be held accountable for their actions, and so Jesus comes, and he's held accountable in our place. The second thing that we need in terms of justice to be true in order for God's restorative justice to be happening beyond sinners paying for sin is to see that those who have been most affected by the fall, the vulnerable, we need to see them defended. God created the world with justice, and then the fall broke everything. And if you think about it this way, there are some in the world who have experienced more of the brokenness of that fall, more of the negative consequences, more of the societal brokenness that has happened, there are certain people who bear that more than others. Trust me, we're all broken, we're all vulnerable, we're all in need. 
But there are some who have had a worse lot cast for them. So in verse 6, we're called to, in the NIV, it says, to loose the chains of injustice or to loose the bonds of wickedness in the ESV. I often say here at Trinity Park, we're called to disadvantage ourselves to advantage others. I mentioned this on December the 19th, but I'll say it again. There's a guy named Nick Wolterstorff at Yale who kind of famously came up with the main categories of vulnerable people mentioned most often in Scripture. And those are the materially poor, the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant. But in our modern society, we can add the elderly, the single mother, the refugee, the physically disabled to this quartet. There are people in our society and in our church even who are uh, more vulnerable to um, the, the chaos that the fall has created. And so why should we be concerned both for the physically and the spiritually vulnerable? Why should we be concerned for them? The simple answer to that question is because God is concerned for them. Clearly God in this passage is so concerned for the spiritually and the physically vulnerable. When we neglect the vulnerable, it's a violation of God's justice. It's a violation of his character. John Newton, who was once a slave trader, but then who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, he wrote of God's preference for the poor. He says, as we read the Old Testament, caring for the needs of the poor is mentioned a hundred times more often than considering the circumstances of the rich. Considering the circumstances of the poor is mentioned a hundred times more often than the rich. God loves the comfortable, but he prefers the poor, Newton says. We cannot gloss over the asp- this aspect of what God is saying. Jonathan Edwards in his book, The Duty of Charity to the Poor, he says this, Where have we any command in the Bible laid down in stronger terms and in more urgent manner than the command of giving to the poor. Jonathan Edwards, who wrote, I don't know how many books, and studied the Bible for how long, he said, where is there another command so obvious in Scripture than serving and loving the poor? So let's look closely at Isaiah 58. Where is God calling us to promote a cross-shaped justice? Well, verse 3, he talks about exploiting your employees, exploiting your employees or those who are under you if you work. God says, it doesn't bring me honor or glory if you are a CEO or you're a high-level manager and the people who work for you, if you have power in this situation at all, for some people who are working for you to have nothing or very little and for you to have a lot, doesn't bring me any honor, doesn't bring me any glory. And let me tell you, if you are a CEO, you're watching today or you're here today, or you have that kind of power, People are watching you, I promise. People are watching how you live and how much and how well your employees are treated. And they're not just watching you because it's really um, of our age to hold the 1% accountable. They're watching you because they're looking at Scripture and they're looking at who God is and they're, they're looking at it and going, are these people really practicing Christianity? Are they really living it out? So if you are a CEO, I would encourage you to think about how you're treating your employees. Does it honor God? Look at Isaiah 58, verse 4, strife in relationships. Verse 4, God says, don't play church and then go out and quarrel and have strife with each other. It doesn't honor me. 
It doesn't honor me to, to say that you're a cross-shaped people and then my son gave his life for you, but then you can't give in to someone because you think they're irrational, they're not making a good point, or because they hurt you. It doesn't honor me, God says, verse 4. Strive for relationships. Three, verse, the third thing we see here, sharing your food with the poor, verse 7. God says, when you eat your fill and you have plenty, and there are others who do not have enough, it does not honor me. It doesn't honor me. I want you to feed the poor. And it's not just individuals going out on their own and feeling compelled by the Holy Spirit to feed the poor. I think that's great. God wants the church, our church, to be feeding the poor. Verse, uh, the, the, the fourth point here, providing shelter for the homeless, clothing the naked, verse 7 and verse 14. If you're clothed in name brands or multiples of name brands and multiples of every type of thing that you could possibly have, and there are other people that don't have those things, then God says, that doesn't please me. It doesn't please me. It's not consistent with who I am. I'm so grateful. I don't know how many coats were given. You guys are, that was, that was incredible. I, I don't know what I expected, but I, I don't know. Andy's going to count how many coats we have, but. I mean, easily like 15 large garbage sacks full of, of, of coats. I'm not even kidding. I mean, there must have been, there's easily over 200 coats <laughs> that were given by our congregation, which is amazing. So I know you all um, really want to follow the Lord in this area, and let's keep it up as we set out together. The fifth thing is, he says, untying the cords of the yoke, or verse 7, setting the oppressed free. Now, this word oppressed, uh, marginalized, has been tossed around like candy in the last two years in the media. Very, um, I understand the, the reactions that you can have to words like this, but it's in the Bible, so let's talk about it. What does it mean to be marginalized or oppressed? Well, in ancient Israel, there were actually laws that were made so that certain families generationally could not be in a, a a terrible position because of decisions that they had made or because of laws that were enacted in the society. God's desire was that no one would be in a situation where generationally they would have no chance because of, of problems that their decisions their granddad or their great-granddad made or because there were illegal or, or bad legal practices in the society. And so on the day of fasting, it says, God says, if you want to be consistent with the cross, if you want to be consistent with who I am on the day of the atonement, we're called to spend ourselves to remove any barriers, whether those barriers are individual or systemic, that continually oppress certain individuals or certain groups of people. Now, I know that word systemic is not in here, but that's exactly what is being described in Isaiah 58. It's a word we've, we've come up with, now, to describe what is going on, so let me explain it to you. Systemic, what is systemic sin? If you want to go back, I think everybody has to, as a Christian, believe there's such a thing as individual sin. That's what we've been talking about, individual sin. So individual sin, when multiple individuals collectively all have the same sin, and they then build practices around that sin, and then they then develop laws around those sins, it becomes a collective sin which impacts all of society. So individual sins lead to corporate sins, which lead to collective sins, which then get inculcated in society, even 
through legal means. And if you want an example of that, the example, one example would be abortion. Abortion is, is a systemic sin. It's a systemic sin where at some point there was an individual, then it became multiple individuals, and then those multiple individuals pursued a way that it could be legally codified in society that we could abort children. Now listen, when I talk about abortion, I want you to know if you've ever, if you personally have ever committed an abortion, uh, you've ever made that decision and had an abortion, I just, I just want you to know there is so much grace for you. I've met with several women who have come to me to talk about that because I know it's, it bears down on you. So I'm not, I'm not using this example as a way to, to hurt in any way, I promise you. But abortion is an example of, of when we systemically oppress a certain group of people as a society. Now, the same principle can be applied in other ways. It could be applied with refugees. It could be a- applied with racism. It could be applied in other ways. But God says when you see systemics and when you see generations of people, when you see whole classes of people that are being impacted by decisions that they've made or many other generations behind have made or the society has made that is making it impossible for them to thrive, then he says what's according to my righteousness and my justice is that my people would do something about that. Now, some of you may be called on an individual level. In fact, we all are called on an individual level to um, to mitigate against injustice. We all are called. Every single one of you. Nobody gets off the hook with that. Now, what type of injustice or where that is, that's, that's something that God may need to convict you of. But there are others of us who may be involved, le- that may be attorneys, that may be politicians, maybe uh, advocates, where so- societally, maybe you're called to get involved in a way to alleviate the oppression or the marginalization of a certain group of people at, at a, a higher level or, or a level that impacts more people, which would be great. But God says, back to verse 3 and verse 4, when you spend all your time on your own pleasures, or verse 4, quarreling and fighting against each other, instead of spending your time talking about and giving to the poor, that doesn't please me. In fact, that's not even enough. I mean, if I'm going to be honest as a preacher, i got to say God would say it's actually totally vile to me. That's really the tone of this passage. I know that's hard to hear. But God is saying, if you just spend your time talking to each other, and you spend your time spending everything on yourself, and you're not helping other people, then that is not consistent with who I am. That's not consistent with who I am. It's not consistent with the cross. Jesus says in Matthew 25, when you love the least of these, my brothers, you love me. You love me. God equates himself with the vulnerable in such a way that we, when we love the vulnerable, Jesus says, you love me. So the first thing when we, at the cross, at the day of atonement, which has become Good Friday, which is the cross, when we align ourselves with who Jesus is at the cross, Jesus came for justice. He took justice seriously, and so should we. The second thing the cross means for us is that God takes mercy seriously, and so should we. God takes mercy seriously, and so should we. What is mercy? Mercy is one of those words we throw around in the church really often. It's easy to assume we know what it means. But mercy comes from the Hebrew word hesed, which means God's unconditional grace and acceptance. God's unconditional grace and acceptance. So you actually don't find the word hesed in Isaiah 58, but it's one of the most important Hebrew words that you could ever know about. If you take mercy out of the church, you don't have a church anymore. If you take justice out of the church, you don't have a church anymore. Who needs mercy? 
Who needs mercy? Well, I would say every single one of us needs mercy. Every single one. When we think about mercy, it's really important because immediately we start thinking about mercy ministry. We start thinking about a group of people who really are needy, who need mercy. But actually, we all, let's start at the very beginning. We all need mercy from God. I need mercy every day. I mean, one of the, one of the prayers, there are times when I am so pushed to my limit. I am so utterly at the end of myself that the only prayer I can pray is, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. And I don't mean it like, you know, my grandmother used to maybe say it, Lord, have mercy. But I mean, like, no, seriously, I mean it. Like, Lord, have mercy on me right now. I need you right now. That is as a prayer that I pray for myself all the time. Mercy means God welcomes unjust, self-consumed sinners into his kingdom. You can't read through Isaiah 58. If you can read through Isaiah 58 and say, you know what? I'm good. There's not a single thing that I'm convicted about in here. Okay. Well, you, I'm not talking to you, I guess, anymore because I'm not sure I can, I, you're going to be listening. But for the rest of us who can read that and we're like, I mean, I need you, Lord. The reality of the gospel is that we have mercy and that mercy from God. All the things we've left undone and all the things we've done, that mercy from God comes to us. Not a single one of us can stand before God on our own merit. How do we receive mercy from God? At the cross, Jesus pays for our sin, and then he pours out mercy through his blood on sinners, vile sinners. Sinners who, when God looks at them, they're like, whoa, you've not come close to meeting the standards of my righteousness, but incredibly I love you because of the, the merit of what my son has done for you on your behalf. I love you, and I don't hold your son against you. How should receiving mercy from God, this kind of, I mean, I can almost feel it in the room right now. I can feel it in my own life. Like, this, this, this feeling of, like, God has really, truly forgiven me of all of those shortcomings found in my life that can be articulated and, and delineated in Isaiah 58. All of those Jesus has paid for them. And so I can stand before a righteous God clean. I can stand before him having received his mercy. How should that impact our lives? Well, it should lead us in grace-filled, compassionate action. That's how it should. A church that is experiencing God's mercy will be a church that is a hospital for broken people. And that's not just uh, people who, like I just said earlier, that have like really awful problems it is absolutely but it's for me you know if you think about the, the question who needs mercy well it starts with me and then it's it, you need to go look in the mirror and then it's every single person in this room we all need god's mercy and then we're a hospital and trinity park actually has a reputation among some people and i would love for this reputation to grow where it's a place where you can come if you're really you're really down and out you're, you're really tired you're really exhausted. You're really hurt. Um, you've really been broken. This is a place for you. This is a church for you. If you're watching online, I'm wondering if you should visit. It's a church. You can't see all the people here or get to know them yet. But, I mean, we're a church that's filled with people who don't have it together and who need God's mercy. That's who we are. You're a church where if you come here and you, you talk vulnerably about your struggles, you're going to be loved. You're going to be told that the gospel is true for you. And you can find that in our community groups and a lot of our other ministries. 
We're a hospital in the community for sinners. But this is really important. In Isaiah 58, the people of God are being held accountable, not just because they haven't been a hospital for broken people. They haven't been a community where people have come in, have been able to come in and receive mercy. They're being held accountable for not going out and taking that mercy out of the church. Now, we absolutely need to care for each other in the church, and we, we need to even do a better job of that than we are doing, and, and the elders are actively talking about ways to do that right now. Um, but we're, we're being called as a people to go out, to take mercy out of the church. And this is, this is showed to us, why do we do this? It's because of Jesus, how he lived. He came for us. He came from heaven to earth, incarnational ministry. We don't just wait for people to come to us. If they come to us, you know, Lord have mercy. We absolutely should help them. Absolutely. But we should go to them. We should take the gospel out. Take the, the message of mercy out. We should be more like a doctors without borders or a mash unit than a hospital um, in this sense. We go out and find who's broken and bring them in to the church. Now to conclude this, verses 8 through 14 contain a long series of if-then statements. If-then if then. So to become a Christian, you need to believe in Jesus Christ. You need to repent of your sin. You need to receive the mercy of God that came to you because Jesus Christ took on the justice of God, and so your sins are forgiven. So you have Jesus. You have him if you believe in Jesus Christ. But as the people of God, there are certain blessings that we're not going to experience as Christians if we don't obey God. Do you, do you understand the difference there? We don't, we're not going to do these things that, that's talking about in 8 through 14 so that we can be Christians and receive God's grace. These things that God calls us to in verses 8 through 14 are, are things that we do because we have received God's grace, and yet if we do not do them, then we will not be blessed by God. We won't experience the fruition that God, is, he wants to bring on our church and his church if we don't practice them. I've already kind of gone through all the things that we need to do. But here's, if, you, if we turn from pursuing our own pleasures, talking idly and all of these things, not doing justice, and we'll pursue the life of the cross, we'll be a cross-shaped people, here are the promises in verses 8 through 14. I'm just going to go through the promises of these verses as we close. If you turn from your pleasures, if you stop talking idly, if you follow Jesus, in these ways, verse 8, we will have our healing spring up speedily, and the glory of the Lord will guard us. If we do these things, we will cry to the Lord, and he will answer us, and he will say, here I am. If we follow the Lord in these ways, we will see our light rise in the darkness and our gloom as the noonday. If we follow the Lord, the Lord will be our guide continually and satisfy our desires in scorched places, and we will be like a well-watered garden and our strength will not fail. If we follow the Lord in these ways, we will have the privilege by the mercy of God to restore the streets without dwellings, to see the broken walls of the city repaired. If we're a cross-shaped people internally and then moving out outwardly, not seeking our own pleasures, which it says twice in verse 14, not seeking your own pleasures, then we will take delight in the Lord and he will enable us to ride on the heights of the earth and we will be a church that is fed by God with the heritage of Jacob. Those are amazing promises. Those are amazing promises. Ultimately, Jesus Christ fulfills all of these broken places that we can't just, 
We're not going to measure up to the, the 100% standard of God's righteousness. That's what Jesus does for us. But still, Jesus calls us to live in a way that is consistent with who he is at the cross. And he says, if you will, if you will live for my justice and my mercy, which is why I came embodied on the cross, there will be so many blessings waiting for us as we reorient ourselves around the cross of Jesus Christ. As Trinity Park Church, I pray that we will be this kind of a community, that we will not be marked by um, just external religiosity. As we move into a building, that we won't just have all the buzzing programs and all those things. Yeah, we're going to have some programs and all that, but at the heart of it all, who are we internally? Who are we as a church? Are we really following Jesus? Are our lives, are we, are we living lives of repentance? Are we living lives that are directed to him? If we, if we live this way, if we live, if we dedicate our lives to him on the inside for real, then we will see God bless our church for his glory in unbelievable and beautiful ways. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the cross. I thank you that at the cross we get reoriented. Um, Lord, I pray for us this morning. Lord, I pray for anyone who feels disoriented, is, is feeling like, wow, uh, there's a lot of things in my life that, um, that need to change. Lord, I pray that they would recognize that you love them, that you love us. Lord, that you're a God of mercy. You're a God of mercy. Lord, I pray that you would restore every single person who feels disoriented. But I do pray, God, that you would bring a spirit of repentance on us. Lord, I know yesterday I was walking on a hike, and you convicted me of um, just being distracted by all kinds of things in my life. And I pray that we would welcome those words from your spirit. When you speak to us, and you speak to us to orient us to yourself, that we will not continue in our distraction, that we will not um, disagree with you and be stubborn, but we'll have soft hearts, hearts that are willing to turn to you, hearts that are willing to be reoriented around the cross of Jesus Christ. Lord God, would you make us a cross-shaped people, I pray in Jesus' name.